Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another edition of Classic Coverage, the podcast that looks at classic movies back when they were just screenplays. My name is Max Davison, and I'm your host. And that's all I'm going to say about myself this week, because this is it's it's a somber episode of Classic Coverage. This is the very last episode that I will be recording from the intern room, sandwiched between the Keurig machine and the copier. As you may recall from a couple episodes ago, uh, we left you when I was running off to try to quell the intern revolution by grabbing a stapler and roundhouse kicking Caleb, the intern upriser. Uh, that really hurt my hand. The stapler had a lot more recoil than I was anticipating, and my hamstrings are not flexible enough to roundhouse kick anybody. So uh, we kind of slap fighted, slap fought, slap fighted, slap fought. Uh, we, we, we slapped each other for a while, is what I'm trying to get to. And then they finally broke it up, and it was ugly. Let's, let's just say it, it was ugly. I'm not going to say who got the better of the exchange, but both sides, both sides got hurt a lot. And the next day, I had to come back into the office. You know, I, I thought I was just going to throw up my fist like the breakfast club and never come back, but I realized that I had left my iPhone charger here. So I came back, and my boss, or possibly former boss, Sandra Hughes-Gomez, she took me aside. And I thought it was going to be either a pat on the back for fighting Caleb or is either a stern, stern talking to. But she sat me down in a room and closed the window and closed the door, and I asked her, uh, you're trying to seduce me, Miss Hughes-Gomez, aren't you? The Graduate, Episode 2, hashtag callback. But no. In fact, she came with good news. You might remember from a few episodes ago that I had covered uh, the Roger Goodell biopic. It was concussion from his point of view as he was just this snivelly, evil, heartless bastard who was trying to maintain order. I liked it. It was the first script in a very long time that I gave good notes to, but I, we had no idea who wrote it because there was no title page. Well, it turned out we found out who the writer actually was. The writer was Miss Sandra Hughes-Gomez. I know, it's crazy, right? It's, it's insane. It's one of those Chris Nolan, I'm not telling a linear story type twists that, well kind of defeat the purpose of enjoying the movie. But either way, it was, it was nuts. And the thing is, she's always wanted to make it as a writer. Like, production was fine, but as a writer, it's a little bit more fulfilling. Because, you know, I mean, let's be honest. Like, a lot of times working in production, it's like, you know, it's like that one Jack Nicholson movie where he plays a writer who gets isolated from society and he gets stuck in this obsessive routine day in and day out and then slowly loses his mind. What was that one called? All right, uh, As Good As It Gets. Anyway, uh, so she wanted to make sure that she was actually talented as, talented as a writer and wasn't just going to pass it to studio execs who were going to, you know, blow smoke up her ass. So she gave it to the, her words, the one jackass reader who was so picky and finicky that he hates everything, end quote. A uh, bit rude, but thank you nonetheless. And since she knew that she had something good, she sent it out under an alias to other production companies and other studios. And there are nibbles. There are bites. And she thinks that she is going to spin off into an independent production company and try to get her own script made. So even though our overall deal at this one particular studio, whose name I still won't say... Relativity! Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> joke. <laughs> Nobody works there. Jesus. Anyway, even though our deal here is ending, there is still hope. And we're going to go off... And I'm, I'm using the word we because she said that she wants to take me with her as one of her creative executives. So after all these years, I may have finally found a paying job in Hollywood. I know. Another crazy-ass Chris Nolan, we're not in the same timeline type twist. Jeez, the prestige was good, though. 
So the only problem with this is that I will be leaving the studio and I will be leaving the vault, which has all the coverage ever written on any script ever submitted to the studio. So I don't think, I don't know if I can do the podcast anymore without classic coverage. Like trying to do a show called classic coverage without any classic coverage would be like doing Ghost in the Shell without any Asian actresses. It'd just, just be pointless. So since this is the very last episode ever, we got to make it a good one. And I've said that in the past. I've said, let's make it a good one in the past. And I didn't really mean it because, I don't know, for whatever reason, they seem to really hate the good scripts and they seem to like the bad ones. I, I, I don't know who's in charge of this, but that seems to be the game that we're playing with this one particular podcast. So I went over there and I found the notes for Over the Top, the Sylvester Stallone arm wrestling movie where he arm wrestles someone for custody of his child. Nationally, they thought it was psychologically taught and got to consider, but we're not going to go through that today. Instead, we're going to look at a movie that won Best Picture that is considered just a tight piece of writing. And you know what? Win or lose, we're getting the hell out of here. So today, we are going to be looking at the script for that classic piece of Humphrey Bogart cinema classic, and I will spare you my Humphrey Bogart impression. But you have no idea what you're missing out on, kid. So today, everybody, get ready as we travel to Casablanca. Script title, Casablanca. Screenwriters, Julius J. Epstein, Philip G. Epstein, and Howard Koch. Based on the stage play, Everybody Comes to Rick's by Murray Bennett and Joan Allison. Genre, drama. Draft date, January 23rd, 1941. Page count, 102. Logline. In Nazi-occupied North Africa, an American expatriate bar owner must choose between the love of his life and the Allied resistance effort when letters of transit come into his possession. Comments. Casablanca is the story of what happens when an isolationist bar owner collides with his ex-girlfriend and her current husband, the leader of the resistance. It is what happens when love, duty, politics, and a world war all collide at once. In other words, coincidence, coincidence, and coincidence. So many coincidences are needed to set up this script. The plausibility of the inciting incident is always an issue. Oftentimes, it's difficult to set up your script's concept in a very organic fashion. And while the letters of transit do send a protagonist into a dangerous world that forces him to reassess his priorities and values, the fact that Ilsa and Victor would just happen to show up at this particular bar at this particular time is very convenient. Even Rick comments on page 37 that, quote, out of all the gin joints, in all the towns, in all the world, she walks into mine. But once you get past this improbable convergence, or if you can get past it, you find a story that offers a surprising amount of character depth and political intrigue. The MacGuffin of the Letters of Transit is simple, yet well set up, thanks to the exposition offered by the slimy Ugarte. His character is essentially a MacGuffin in and of himself, disappearing shortly after delivering the letters. These papers are a way out of purgatorial Casablanca, a way home for any lost soul caught up in the conflict. This is a universally valued item, one that has built-in conflict and stakes. Rick Blaine is a somewhat one-note character at first. Early on, he states, quote, I stick my neck out for no man, and, quote, I never make plans that far ahead when asked about what he's doing tonight. Both lines telegraph his later face turn, but they are a good yard marker for his initial point of view. Rick is a loner a man with no real friends apart from Captain Reynaud, whom he tolerates. 
Renault is a two-faced French military man serving two masters. He is just complicated enough to serve as both an enemy and a confidant. He and Rick own the majority of the script's best dialogue and one-liners, an antagonistic yet familiar banter. When Major Strasser asks for his nationality, Rick responds, I'm a drunk. Renault replies, which means Rick is a citizen of the world. Rick's isolationist perspective is challenged by the jarring introduction of Ilsa Lund and her husband, Victor Laszlo. The writers, multiple writers, I add, pick the exact worst person to walk into Rick's Café American, leading to a better second act. Rick and Victor sound very similar, mirroring one another, a former freedom fighter and a current revolutionary. This plot thread gains even more complexity as we learn the backstory, in a flashback sequence lasting only three pages, which may be the perfect length. Would Rick sacrifice the future of the Allied war effort for the sake of the love of his life? Oftentimes, adding in the fate of the free world would feel like escalating tensions far too much. But in a script set in the midst of an actual war, we'll gloss over that trope. Late in Act 2, we get a scene at the craps table where Rick uses the rigged spin to help a young couple leave Casablanca. It shows Rick's growing sympathy, a sympathy that, ironically, could be dangerous. Other than Rick's man-versus-self-conflict and the marathon of machismo that Rick and Victor run against one another, Major Strasser is the primary antagonist. He's a bit of a mustache-twirling villain, but then again, he is a Nazi and should probably be portrayed as such. The third act hinges on another change of heart for Rick. He sets up his brilliant scheme to escape with Ilsa, but then reveals that Victor will be the one flying off with her. Rick leaves Ilsa with a long, occasionally on-the-nose monologue, quote, I am no good at being noble, but it doesn't take much to see that the problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world, end quote. Yes, the dialogue is a bit obvious and redundant at times. And yes, Ilsa and Victor ending up together deprives us of a romantic payoff. And yes, Rick and Renault walking off together in the fog feels like it's done so purely for the sake of setting up a sequel in which they continue to fight the good fight in Africa. But it all seems to work. And in today's Hollywood of 1941, there's something optimistic about the fact that the war could end thanks to the actions of one American freedom fighter. This could register with movie-going audiences, but do we put out a World War II movie right in the middle of World War II? In the opinion of this reader, hope is something that is always needed at the cinema. Uh, one issue does stand out, however, and that is the fact that we would have to buy the music rights to As Time Goes By, or possibly we switch it to something in the public domain. Recommendation. Consider. So there you have it. The script for Casablanca, gotta consider. And right now it feels as though sanity has prevailed. And in that rare instance of there being sanity and order in the Hollywood development process, I think that's as good a point as any to sign off and finally end the podcast. This whole experience has got me thinking about that quote that I've used a couple times this series, the fact that there are no second acts in American life. It's a quote that I had misattributed to Nicolas Cage, but as one of you so kindly wrote in, and I quote, It's F. Scott Fitzgerald, you pretentious fuckwit. End quote. Uh, thank you for writing. Bit rude, but thank you nonetheless. But yeah, there are no second acts in American life. There, I don't even think there are second acts in a good screenplay. Because right now, I'm starting all over in Act 1. This is a new page one. This is a new fade-in. And I think it's the beginning of what might be a beautiful friendship. 
So right now I'd like to thank Noah Goldberg as always for the wonderful theme music. I'd like to thank all of you who tuned in every week. I'd like to thank the two of you who gave us a review on iTunes. It meant the world to me. And right now, I'm going to go off and ride off into the sunset like, like John Wayne and Grace Kelly. Oh my god, I should have done Die Hard. I should have done Die Hard. Why did I not read the Die Hard cover? But you know what? No. Chapter's over. New Act 1. So if you, uh, excuse me, I have to go carve my initials into the back of the Keurig machine so people will always remember that I was here uh, for the last time ever. My name is Max Davison, reminding you as always that even the classics could use another pass of notes. Okay, we recording? Okay, good. Oh, finally got this set up again. We haven't had power in a while. Uh, hi, it's a couple of months later. I'm just updating you. I am recording this now from our new production office off the lot, and uh, things have deteriorated. Uh, we do not have air conditioning. We do not have heat. It is a little bit of a nightmare over here. Uh, we don't have any parking spots, so I had to park two miles away in Uber over to the office today. And uh, uh, yeah, that Roger Goodell script that Sandra wrote, it got on the blacklist. And you know what a blacklist spot in 450 gets you? It gets you a venti nitro cold brew at Starbucks, which I have to go out and buy because we don't have a coffee machine here. Uh, but all is not lost because I am the co-creative executive at this new production company. I say co because I share that job title with my colleague, Sandra's nephew, Caleb. Caleb has the same job title as me. He actually technically outranks me just a little bit. And trying to develop anything and give notes to writers while he's over my shoulder, it's it, it, it's not very conducive to good development or my sanity. Uh, today, for example, he left a, a bloody stapler on my desk with a post-it note that said coverage.script. And uh, you all know what that means. <sighs> I never should have left that job in the studio. There was the vault there. There was limitless free coffee. There was golf carts, and one time I nearly ran over Peter Berg. It was, it was fun. He shouted obscenities at me. It was the highlight of my time there. It was amazing. I never should have left that job. And you know what? Right now, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm going to rededicate all of my energies into getting a job back on that studio lot once more. I have to go back. We have to go back!